And special thanks to, to Gabe for leading us in that song. And to, <clears throat> and to Luz and Carmen for translating, for those of us that aren't fluent in Spanish, so we could know what was, what was going on. Hey, so we are um, continuing on in our teaching series that we're calling Resolution Redux. It means we're just going back to those resolutions that uh, don't always stick. And last week we looked at the resolution, I want to do a better job of handling my time. And this week we're going to take a look at the resolution of I want to do a better job at handling my stuff and my money. Resolutions like I'm going to cut up my credit cards. I'm going to get out of debt. I'm going to start saving. And by this time of year, usually that stuff has gone out the window. And as I suggested to you last week, the reason why resolutions tend not to stick is because we take one of the things, one of the things that God gives us to us as a gift, time and money are gifts from God, and we make them the thing. And there's only one thing that's supposed to be in the center of our life, and that's a person, that's Jesus Christ. And when we get that order mixed up, everything goes all haywire. So we're going to take a look at what Jesus did and taught and the Bible teaches and, and um, instructs us by way of how we handle our, our possessions and our time and our talent and our money. I want to start by um, getting us thinking about the connection between money and time and talent and the idea of generosity. I mean, two, the two kind of things go, go hand in hand. You think about uh, generosity, and immediately the, the thought goes to, goes to money. Um, so we're going we're gonna to take it from, from that angle. We're going to take it from the angle of we are all created in the image of God. And God, one of his defining attributes is that of generosity. Therefore, one of our defining attributes should be generosity. And to help get us thinking along these lines, to get us grounded a little bit, I want to read to you two, uh, two short stories. One of them is, uh, some of you may recognize the author Sebastian Younger. He wrote The Perfect Storm. He's a really great, great author. Um, this is, uh, he was hiking across country, and this is a tale that he, not a tale, it's a true story, uh, he recorded uh, an encounter that he had um, along the way. It says, uh, I was making my way through the aftermath of a blizzard in Gillette, Wyoming. After two or three hours, I saw a man walking his way toward me along the on-ramp from town. He wore filthy canvas coveralls and carried a black lunchbox. And as he got closer, I could see that his hair was matted in a way that occurs only after months on the skids. I put my hand on the pepper spray in my pocket and turned to face him. You've been out here long, he asked. I nodded. Where are you headed? California. Warm out there. Yep. You got enough food? That was the homeless man speaking to Sebastian. You got enough food? I thought about this. Clearly, he didn't have any. And if I admitted that I did, he'd ask for some. That in itself wasn't a problem. But it would mean opening my backpack and revealing all my obviously expensive camping gear. I felt alone and exposed and ripe for pillage. And I just didn't want to do that. 20 years later, I still remember my answer. I got some cheese. You won't make it to California with just a little cheese, he said. You'll starve. At first, I didn't understand. What was he saying exactly? I kept my hand on the pepper spray, 
Believe me, he said, I know. Listen, I'm living in a car back in town, and every day I walk out to the mine to see if they need me. Today they didn't, so I won't be needing this lunch of mine. I began to sag with understanding. In his world, whatever you have in your bag is all you've got. And he knew a little cheese would never get me to California. I'm fine, really, I said. I don't need your lunch. He shook his head and opened his box. It was a typical church meal, a bologna sandwich, an apple, and a bag of chips. And I kept protesting, but he wouldn't hear of it. I finally took his lunch and watched him walk back down the on-ramp toward town. I had learned a lot of things in college, I thought, and I learned a lot from books. I had learned things in Europe and in Mexico and in my hometown in Belmont, Massachusetts. But I had to stand out there on the frozen place of, on this frozen piece of interstate to learn what true generosity is from a homeless man. Not many of us will find ourselves hiking across country uh, in, the, in the aftermath of a blizzard. However, many of us know what it's like to be in a financial hardship, to, um, to just have kind of our financial world turned upside down. So you might relate a little bit better to this story. This is a gentleman named Richard Stearns. In 1987, the largest single-day stock market crash since 1929 took place, and one day my wife Renee and I lost more than one-third of our life savings and the money we had put aside for our kids' college education. I was horrified, and I became like a man obsessed, each night working past midnight, analyzing on spreadsheets all that we had lost, and the next day calling in orders to sell all our remaining stocks and mutual funds to prevent further losses. Of course, that turned out to be an, the absolute worst thing I could have done. I was consumed with anguish over our lost money, and it showed. One night when I was burning the midnight oil, Renee came and sat beside me. Honey, she said, this thing is consuming you in an unhealthy way. It's only money. We have our marriage, our health, our friends, our children, and a good income. So much to be thankful for. You need to let go of this and trust God. Don't you hate it when someone crashes your pity party? I didn't want to let go of it. I told her I felt responsible for our family and that she didn't understand. It was my job to worry about things like this. She suggested we pray about something I hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me, so we did. At the end of my prayer, at the end of our prayer, to my bewilderment, Renee said, now I think we need to get out the checkbook and write some big checks to our church and the ministries we support. We need to show God that we know this is his money and not ours. I was flabbergasted at the audacity of this suggestion, but in my heart, I knew she was right. So that night, we wrote some sizable checks, put them in envelopes, addressed them to various ministries, and sealed them. And that's when I felt a wave of relief. We had broken the spell that money had cast over me. It freed me from the worries that had consumed me. I actually felt reckless and giddy. God, please catch us, we, because we just took a crazy leap of faith. So what is it about generosity that makes us, that requires us to get to the end of our rope before we recognize it? before we understand it, before we begin to act as though it's something we, we should do. Generosity is um, it's almost denigrated in, in culture, right? Greed is elevated to a divine attribute, and, and generosity is held aside for something for billionaire philanthropists. And then there's all the, the, the baggage and the clutter that comes with, with our money, Right? We work hard for our money. That's my money. How dare you ask for my money? And just that it, the idea of generosity takes so much to, to whittle away from all the, all the stuff that gets wrapped around it. When really, it's, it's one of the ways, 
it's one of the ways that we can bring God to the world. Not just the, the gift itself, but when, when we live for more than acquiring the next thing, more than the next promotion, more than just a bigger bank account, it shows that our hope is placed in way more than the stuff of Fairfield County, that our hope is in Jesus. So <clears throat> I'm not sure, but I, I actually think I saw a couple of y'all grab your pocketbooks and your wallets a little tighter as I started talking. Um, everybody to breathe a little bit, right? Just relax um, and breathe. And I was going to make, you know, some kind of joke about I'm not, I'm not going to stand up here and, and ask for you to give more money to Crossroads. And then I thought to myself, well, if the Holy Spirit is going to tell you to give more money to Crossroads, I am not going to stand in the way of that. So you do what you got to do. But more importantly, um, my hope and my prayer for this morning is that we would all discover the gift that generosity is to us. Not just the gift that flows through us when we're generous, but what it means to grow in Christ-likeness, in his image, because he is the ultimate example of, of generosity. And in order to, to kind of round out this conversation, we're going to look at the, some passages from the book of 2 Corinthians. In the Bibles that we have, we have two books, First and 2 Corinthians. What we learn from those two books is that there are actually four letters, four books to the Corinthians, that over the course of time and history that we, we lost two of them. And the book that we're going to look at is actually 4th Corinthians. And the only reason I point that out is this, is books 1, 2, and 3 were Paul, who wrote the letter to Corinthians, um, to the Corinthians. He wrote most of the New Testament, and um, the first three letters were, were him be like, you guys are a mess. You guys have got to get your acts together. Let's work on this. This is not what Jesus has for us. And this last one is more like, all right, I love you guys. We're good. You guys got this. It's, a, it's got a much more encouraging tone to it. And that's the, that's the way that he goes into um, what he's about to describe and, and encouraging the Corinthian church to generosity. And specifically, we are going to look at one verse from chapter 8 and like eight or nine verses from chapter 9. The entirety of these two passages is all about generosity. And the context is this, is that the church in Jerusalem is, is struggling financially. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is there's a famine. 46 AD is the, as close as we can identify the timing on this. There's a famine in, in Jerusalem. So everybody is struggling. They, the Jerusalem church was made up of um, Jewish believers, people who grew up in the Jewish faith and started following Jesus. And they were being ostracized by their family, by their friends. So that meant some of them lost jobs. That meant some of them lost connections with family. Places where income would have come from were no longer there. Um, and the all of the Jewish people within Jerusalem were getting hit with a double tax. They had to pay a Jewish tax, and they had to pay a Roman tax. And our, our scholars tell us that that was probably somewhere around 40%. 
So 40% of what they were making was being taken away from them in terms, in terms of taxes. That's the Jerusalem church. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and to help encourage them to be generous, he cites the Macedonian church. These are all churches that he had a hand in. The Macedonian church, um, they were uh, impoverished, right? They had, they had nothing. And we find out as we read the letters of the Second um, Corinthians that the Macedonian church, they came through huge with a big gift for not only the church in Jerusalem, but a large financial gift was a big part of the reason why Paul was able to plant even the church in Corinth. So Paul is, is encouraging them by saying, okay, let's take a look at the Macedonians. Let's see what, what they did. And then he's comparing them to the church in Corinth. I'm not sure how well that's going to show up up there. So Corinth is kind of interesting where it is, right? It's this little, I think the, the right term is a isthmus. It's that little strip that connects those two bodies of water. And it was the center of trade and commerce because it was dangerous. If you look at the little inset, it was dangerous to sail around the Greek Peloponnesus. So what they would do is they would bring ships. I actually, I think I have a little laser pointer. Look at, look at me go, right? Um, they would bring their ships, no, it's not worry. They would bring their ships right here, and they would drag them. I'm not going to try to pronounce that word, but there was actually like a path that they would drag their ships over to get from one side of that isthmus to the other rather than make that dangerous trek around the, Pe the Peloponnesus. And as a result, there was all kinds of trade and commerce and money that flowed through the city of Corinth. The church at Corinth, they had bucks. And so Paul was encouraging them, hey, you guys, you guys can do this. You guys have the wherewithal to do this. The last thing I want to point out, um, and I made mention of the first half of this, is so the, the church in Jerusalem was made up of uh, Jewish converts. The churches in Corinth and Macedonia were mostly um, Greco-Roman Gentile converts. So they were not... They had completely different backgrounds, completely different upbringings. So why, why all the contact? Why is any of this important? Here's, here's the deal. Because generosity is for everyone. It doesn't matter how much you, ha like you think you have or how much you may think you don't have. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or irreligious. Generosity, because we are all, all of us, created in the image of God. Generosity is an attribute of God that we are all called to imitate. So there's kind of like the first, the first point of encouragement. Paul sets up the Macedonian church. He's like, look, these guys came through huge. They don't have all that much. He's like, Corinthians, you guys are loaded. Imagine what you could do. Imagine the blessing that you could give to the church in Jerusalem. So that's kind of like encouragement number one. Then he pulls out the big guns, right? He, he he motivates them. He's like, let's look at the generosity of Jesus. And this is chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is huge, you guys. This is, this is everything. This is the gospel, the story of God 
reconciling and restoring humanity to himself is the story of generosity. Jesus gave up everything for us who had nothing. He literally gave up heaven. Jesus was in heaven with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and he gave it up willingly. He gave it up for you and for me, knowing that it was a debt that we could never repay. That, that is grace. It's the term that we use, grace. It's, a, it's an unearned gift. It's a gift that could never be repaid. And as we grow and mature in our faith and our walk with Jesus, there's a couple things that hopefully we will learn about grace. And one, the first thing is, is that when you draw from the well of grace, it is a never-ending well. There's an endless supply of God's grace. The second thing is this, is that the way to access more grace is by giving away the grace that you've been given. Right? When we bless other people, the blessings of God flow through us to other people. So <clears throat> I will ask your forgiveness ahead of time. This is kind of a crude analogy. But I would suggest to you that um, Jesus acted as a funnel for the grace of God. This unending supply through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus flows through him to us. And then we are called to be a funnel of the blessings of God to other people. As we access God's grace and his blessings, those things are meant to flow through us to, to other people. So we have this idea of this funnel, that the Christian life is a funnel. God's blessings are supposed to flow through us. I'm gonna, this is like nine, nine verses I'm going to read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is Paul continuing on with his next piece, piece of encouragement to, um, to the Corinthian church. This is 9. We're starting in verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Nine verses, and in those nine verses, there are a ton, a ton of superlatives, right? We learn that God's grace and his provision is over the top. It's all-encompassing. It's completely disproportionate. It's more than we could possibly 
ask or imagine. If you were following along, I would encourage you in your Bible to highlight those, look at those words, right? Abundantly, all things, all occasions, every occasion. There's no wiggle room in this. God's supply is limitless, and he makes it available to us. God's supply is limitless, and he makes it available to us. So we don't have to worry. Like, if we feel God calling us to be generous, well, if I'm generous, God, if I give that away, I'm not going to have it anymore. I got you. There's plenty where that came from. Give it away. Go ahead. Invest the blessings that I've given you in someone else and somewhere else, and watch. Watch what I do. Watch what I do. There is, in these passages, there is a link between our receiving and giving. There is a link. As we, as we look at those passages, right, what is the link? You give, you give a little, you get a little. You give a lot, you get a lot. You give like Jesus gave everything Jesus gave everything, and he gave it freely, without expectation of being repaid. You give in that way, and you receive God's pleasure. So God loves a cheerful, a cheerful giver. And when we, when we give like Jesus, when we give from the abundance with which God provides us, we are, we are blessed with an increasing amount of righteousness. In other words, we're blessed with an ability, an increasing ability. Check that, rewind that. An increasing desire and ability to bless other people. When we give for the sake of getting, we miss the point. Right, the whole the whole idea of the prosperity gospel is completely like contrary to what we read in the in the Bible. The idea of giving to God so that my bank account will grow is is ludicrous. There's no way you can honestly look at scripture and come up with that philosophy or that that theology. We are called to give because it reflects the image of God. We are called to give because it brings hope to people around us. The actual gift and the fact that we're willing to, to be generous with what God has, has given to us. So we think about Jesus who gave without expectation of being paid back without expectation of anything except God's glory and our good. And this is from Philippians chapter 2. This tells us what Jesus gained. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gave everything to those of us who had nothing, and in return, he gained everything. But that wasn't his expectation. 
His expectation was just that God, Father, be glorified through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that he would offer his life as a, as a ransom for, for the world. That's, that's the call upon us. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite authors helps make the connection between uh, the manner in, in which we give and the way God chooses to use people. I want to read you this quote. This is Erwin McManus from a book called Uprising. When your pursuit is for wealth, you leave generosity behind. When you live generously, God pursues you with his riches. You are never poor when you live to give. You are never rich in the sight of God when you hoard things to yourself. There is a relationship between living generously and being entrusted by God. God searches for those through whom he can bless the world. So, how do we do that? How do we bless the world? That's the call upon us as followers of Jesus, to act as that funnel of God's grace and his blessing to the world. A couple of practical suggestions for you, right? The first one has to do with your time. To, I would encourage you to be generous with your time. And again, this is an idea from Erwin McManus. The easiest way that I, I've come to understand this is that every relationship that you're in, every interaction you have with another person, that you would seek to give 1% more than you receive. He kind of calls it striving for 51. With your kids, with your spouse, with your boss, with your classmates, every interaction that you have, if you give 1% more into that interaction, whatever it is, if, if whatever it looks like, if it's a compliment, if it's financial, if it's that something in that interaction that would just be a blessing and a gift to somebody else. Right? You can use your time, your time to be generous. Second thing would be your talent. Each one of us has talents. Each one of us who call Jesus Christ Lord has been given a spiritual gift. We've been given passions, those things that make our heart race. And there are things in the world that are that God calls us to attend to. There are things uh, where people are hurting, where lives are broken, where there are significant, significant needs. And the intersection of your gifts and passions and the great needs of the world, that's the sweet spot for your investment, for your generosity of your gifts and talents and passions. And I would encourage you that if you, um, just as every one of us has gifts and talents to offer, there's not a person in this room who could say, I have nothing to offer. God created you to love him and to love others. Right? He's wired you to do that. And the, the last part of this is with our treasure, with, with our money. And this, this, can be, um, this can be difficult, but it can also be like when we live open, with an open hand, um, it's freeing. You know, like Richard Stern's story, when he, when he got over himself and over just the obsession he had with the money and, and what they lost, uh, it, can, it can be freeing. It can be really freeing. 
So I want to give to you a couple of suggestions, and again, I'll steal this from somebody else. These are not my, this is not my alliteration. When we think about giving our money, the first thing I would suggest is that you make it a priority. As you sit down and think about your budget, it would be the first thing, if not one of the first things that you consider. Got to pay the mortgage. Got to pay the car. I'm going to give. That it would be one of those big buckets that you think about first and that it comes it comes off the top and not what is left over or what you happen to have in in your pocket and I would suggest to you that this even um, is reflected in how in how we choose to give right I know there are folks who um, it's very meaningful to them as part of this worship service to actually place something in the basket and again, this goes to our personal wiring, like how we interact with God, how we engage with God. And it's important for, for people to, to do that. And that's great. And that's the way God wired you to give. Give that way. There are some people who have, that's really important to them, but they have a hard time remembering to bring a checkbook or a cash to church. Um, and so we try to make giving as easy as we possibly can. Ben mentioned that you can give online, right? Crossroadct.info slash giving. And you can give right from your seat. And for me, um, I, I want to make my giving a priority. I am completely, Sunday mornings are a little bit chaotic, and I would never, ever remember to bring a, a checkbook to, to church. So I want to make this a priority. I don't want it to fall outside the, the time when I've committed to the church I would give. So um, you can set up, we can set up automated recurring giving. Right, so your gift, just like, you know, I pay my mortgage this way. I pay my electric bill this way. Goes the same time every month. Gail and I sit down and talk about how much we want to give, and we set it up, and it goes. That's how we make it a priority is we make sure that it happens. Like me being a ditz doesn't impact our giving. It should be a percentage. It should be a priority. It should be a percentage. The Old Testament's pretty clear, 10%, a tithe. Wow, 10%, that's a lot. What does the New Testament say? You can make an argument that the New Testament still encourages a tithe, but I would suggest to you that the New Te Testament doesn't stop at a tithe. The New Testament encourages us to go beyond that. Right? The New Testament is all about the grace of God. That's what we're talking about, giving generously. Grace means that we don't stop at the minimum requirement of the law. Grace means that we go above and beyond. Grace calls us to give what God tells us to give. And that changes over the course of time. Right? So this should be progressive, meaning that at, you should periodically look at your finances, right, Craig? We should look at our finances periodically. Craig is our treasurer and, and a CPA. Um, you should review your finances regularly, and part of that should be thinking about and praying about, and if you're married, discussing with your spouse, how much God is calling you to give. It should be a progressive thing. So look, if you are just starting on this generosity journey, pick a percent, like, do some business with God. Is it a percent? Is it 2%? Whatever it is, start. Just start. Right? The Bible says, 
where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Where, where you send your money, that's where your heart is going to go. Your heart may not necessarily be there at the beginning, but your money has a strange way of drawing your heart. That's why Jesus says, build up for yourself treasure in heaven. One last bit of encouragement that Paul gives to um, the church in Corinth, and that is this, that generosity has the ability to, um, it's like this great evangelism tool. Handling the gifts of God well is a compass that points to Jesus. Last week we talked about time, right? And we talked about the way Jesus handled his time. He was never hurried. He was never pressured by anything. Jesus' pace was dictated by his mission and his identity. And his pace was what allowed him to bring people the love of God. His pace brought peace wherever he went. And it can do the same thing for us. When we travel at the speed of our mission and our identity, we bring the love and peace of Jesus with us. The pace of Jesus in you brings peace to those around you. The pace of Jesus in you brings peace to those around you. Think about where we live and when we live in this greater Fairfield County area and how fast people go through life. Just if you, if we as a community, 100 or so people, made a commitment to live at the pace of our mission and our identity, it would draw attention to Jesus in a positive way. How great would that be that the church would draw attention to Jesus in a positive way? So this week we moved on to thinking about, about generosity and giving like, like Jesus gave. When we do that, when we, um, when we look at Jesus, how he gave everything with no expectations of anything in return, the gift was to those who could not repay what he had to offer. It brings hope, right? There's the actual gift that's given and the blessing that that, but it brings hope. It shows that there's hope in more, than, I mentioned this when I started, than acquiring more stuff. The generosity of Jesus through you brings hope to those around you. So we'll, we'll just end with this, folks. <clears throat> Here's the deal. If you want to more effectively look up and lean in and reach out, if you want to more effectively love God and, and love others, if you, if you want to share your faith with your friends and family, if you want to bring a Jesus-y, non-anxious presence with you wherever you go, if you want to experience the blessings of God in ever-increasing measure, then move at the pace of your mission and your identity and give like Jesus gave. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your example. 
We thank you that you gave all for us, knowing that we could never repay it. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the example of, of these different churches and these people of all these different backgrounds who gave. Some gave from their, their abundance and, and all the surplus that they had. Some gave out of, out of their destitution, but all gave. And they gave for, for your glory and for the good of their brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, may we be the kind of people that bring your peace with us because of the way and the pace at which we travel. May we be the kind of people who bring your hope with us because we give like you give. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. Amen.